Well, hey, everybody. Man, good evening. It's good to be gathered up with you all tonight, getting to come together and worship our King together, worship our Savior, to give him thanks and praise for who he is and all that he's done. Um, and if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Zach, and uh, I get to serve as the worship pastor at Mosaic. And um, sometimes I'm over at the other campus. Sometimes I'm here like last week. Um, and it's just a privilege this week to get the opportunity to uh, open up the scriptures with us tonight and unpack what God has for us. You know, my prayer is that the spirit of God would just have his way tonight, um, that he'd use me in spite of all of my shortcomings and weaknesses to, uh, to glorify Jesus ultimately and to open up our minds and eyes and hearts to what he has to say for us tonight. Um, so if you, if you don't know me, I like to sing. That's something that I do fairly regularly. Um, I really enjoy singing. And one of my favorite places in the world to sing is within the confines of my own car with the windows up and the stereo just cranking. You know, some people prefer the shower. I'll take the car every time. Because um, there I can, I can just turn up the radio and I can just release all inhibitions and just go to town, just, just ripping it. And, or, or I can just start joining in with the band and play a little air guitar or use my steering wheel and the dash as like a drum set. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else been there? Yeah. Or maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't sing and, and play the instruments, um, but you like to just turn up your favorite, maybe Taylor Swift song and just like have a little dance party in the car. Anybody else? Anybody out there? Well, for me, like those moments of just like, existential bliss of glory uh, can just really quickly fade when I'm at a stoplight and somebody pulls up next to me and I just like feel it, you know, you just like sense out of your peripherals like, oh, somebody's watching me right now and this is awkward. This is really awkward. And so you like slowly you're like, oh, hey, hey, don't mind me. Just uh, just jamming out, you know. Uh, or, or maybe you're not the one in the car, but may, maybe you're the one in the other car who pulls up next to somebody and like, that person's crazy. <laughs> that person's lost their mind. They are uh, insane and because they look insane. You, you just you look crazy uh, if that's uh, the case. And why is that? Like, why, why do, the, do the people in the car uh, think that you're crazy from the other car? Well, there's something missing. What's missing from their experience uh, to your experience. It's the music. They don't hear the music, right? They don't realize that the dance moves that you are breaking out are some of the best. They fit the song perfectly. They don't hear how amazingly angelic your voice sounds in that moment. They don't hear it. It doesn't make sense to them. So there was a, a, a philosopher who once said, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. See, this is where we're going today as we conclude our series on Jesus, true and better. And we see that Jesus is the true and better king. We're going to see that he is a king that to most people just doesn't make sense, really. So throughout this series, we've been exploring as a community how the entire Bible is one unified story that leads us to Jesus. We've looked at characters throughout the Old Testament, guys like um, Moses and Isaac. We looked at Esther and Deborah, exploring different roles and offices. We've seen how each ultimately leads us to a clearer image of Jesus. How, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says it, every story whispers his name. And it's been incredible. I hope it's been encouraging to you. If you've missed any of the last eight weeks, go back, podcast it, listen to it. Because for me... It's been encouraging, it's been challenging, it's been eye-opening, it's been faith-building. I pray that it has been for you. And ultimately, I pray that it leads all of us to a greater understanding and appreciation of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do. And that our, our lives would be forever changed by the reality that, that Jesus is the true and better. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, uh, we kind of started this little series within a series. Uh, instead of just looking at specific individuals in the Old Testament, we started looking at the three distinct offices that we see uh, lived out in uh, the nation of Israel. We looked two weeks ago at the office of 
priest, the role of priest. The priest was to go to God on behalf of the people to bring reconciliation between God and his people. And last week we learned that the role of prophet uh, was to go to the people on behalf of God, to bring revelation from God to the people. And this week, finally, we get to look at the role of king. The role of king in the Old Testament uh, was someone who would lead protect and steward God's people. He was to rule and to reign with justice and with righteousness for the betterment of the people of God. Now, an important thing to know is that those roles of priest and prophet uh, were introduced long before the, the, the office of king. In fact, uh, the office of king was established through a prophet, a prophet by the name of Samuel. And that's where we're going to begin our time together as we journey through the scriptures is in the book of first Samuel. Uh, now we're, we're about to go on a journey together. So just get, get ready. It's, it's, it's a long one. It's got a lot of twists and a lot of turns. It's got some familiar stories, maybe some unfamiliar stories. And I know that many of us in the room ultimately know where this is headed, right? It's headed to the fact that what, like that Jesus is true and better. He's the true and better King, but I want to just encourage us all tonight to just go there, like to to dig in, to dive deep into this story and discover why Jesus really is the true and better king and how Jesus really is the true and better. So you ready? Ready to go on this journey together? It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. It's going to be long, but it's going to be good. (laughs) First Samuel chapter eight. Open your Bibles up. Um, well, actually, before, before we dive in, sorry, let me just help us with the context a little bit, where we're diving into the book of 1 Samuel. So um, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you may know uh, that uh, Israel, God's chosen people, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God miraculously delivered them out of slavery. He led them through the wilderness. He made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. He eventually... Uh, led them into the promised land. And and it was there that the the nation of Israel was supposed to keep those covenant commands of God and remain faithful to him. But as we read throughout the Old Testament, we see that time and time again, they just fall short of keeping those commands. See, before, before the story of Samuel is this period of the judges. And the period of Judges, uh, man, it was just a tumultuous time where the, the people of Israel just continually fell short of keeping God's command. Time and time again, they did not remain faithful uh, and, and they suffered the consequences of their mistakes. And yet, all the while, throughout all this time, God remained faithful to his people and the promises that he made to them. So that's where the book of Samuel picks up. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, um, as the period of the judges is starting to come to its close and the period of kings is about to be established, uh, we meet a woman named Hannah. Hannah is uh, Samuel's mother, who she at the time is barren. She can't have any kids, so she prays and prays and prays. And through a pretty miraculous set of circumstances, God gives her a child. And that child's name is Samuel. And she sings this beautiful song uh, as she takes Samuel to the Lord to dedicate him to God, to say, God, he's yours forever. Do with him what you want to do. She, she sings this amazing song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And um, man, in that song, we see some really important themes uh, kind of uh, unfold, this countercultural foretelling of what was about to come, what was to come as we dive into the period of the kings. There's three key themes. One is that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Another theme throughout her song is that despite human evil, God is at work. He's moving. And three, that God will raise up a messianic king. So take that, stick that in your pocket. Remember that because that's what we're about to see unfold throughout this story. So now as Samuel grows up, he, um, he, he doesn't remain a baby forever. He, he grows up into a, a full-blown human man, guy. Uh, he becomes a, a prophet and a judge over the people of Israel. He's leading the people of Israel. And at the same time, the Philistines kind of raise, uh, raise up as 
um, the arch nemesis of the Israelites. They're a, a bad group of people who were who hated the Israelites, and so there's a lot of back and forth. Um, the Philistines actually come and they steal the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, and then God intervenes, and the Philistines are like, "Oh, we shouldn't have done that. Uh, we're gonna be, we're gonna bring it back." <laughs> and so they bring it back uh, to the people of Israel, and and it's just God coming through for His people. Over and over and over again, God coming through for his people. So much so that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, led by Samuel, the, the people of Israel build an Ebenezer. It's this, it's this stone of remembrance, kind of like an altar, so that uh, the people of Israel and the coming generations would remember how God helped them. It's this stone of help that they would see and remember God's faithfulness to them. So that's what leads us to 1 Samuel chapter 8. So now, now open your Bible up, 1 Samuel 8. We're going to pick up in verse 4, where things start to change a little bit. Verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are now old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And they are also doing so, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only shall you solemnly warn them and show them all the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is such a sad moment in history, really. It's such a sad moment in the, the, the story of Israel because the elders of Israel come to Samuel and they're like, give us a king. They demand a king because they want to be like the other nations. And so Samuel's like, Seriously, guys, like you don't like really like I'm the one leading you. He takes this personal offense for one. He goes to God and God's like, actually, they're rejecting me. And it's so sad. So God tells him to go and warn the, the, the elders of Israel of what it's going to be like. And this warning, y'all, it is tough. The next nine verses that Samuel brings uh, to the to the people of Israel, like it is intense. Go read it sometime. It is going to be hard. He's like, this is going to be awful for you. If you want a king, it's going to be terrible. He's going to take everything from you. He's going to take your money, your land, your flocks, your vineyards, even your sons and your daughters. He's going to take it all. He's even going to make you his slaves. It's, this is a harsh warning. Now, you would think that after hearing this warning, the, the people of Israel are like, oh, Oh, it's going to be like that? Okay, never mind. Never mind. We'll just keep things the way they are. I, I like not being a slave and stuff. Like, but that's not how they respond. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also, we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Gosh, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. The people reject God. The ones who saw God come through time and time again, who even built Ebenezer's so that they wouldn't forget, <laughs> proclaiming that the Lord had helped them. The descendants of those whom God led out of slavery in Egypt, who provided for them throughout the desert, on into the promised land, defending them against their enemies. It was those people from that lineage, they have now turned away and forgotten and put their hope and trust in an earthly king that they can see to lead them, protect them, and make them like the other nations. Like how foolish, right? 
It's like, come on, guys. Like, you don't get it. You know, that's, that's my first reaction. As I read this, I'm like, guys, geez, come on, Israel. Like, get it together. Like, shouldn't you know better by now? Like, how many times you got to mess up before you learn, right? And then it hits me. I'm like, oh, wait a second. Like, I am way more like the elders of Israel in this story than I would want to admit, really. See, I, I may not be demanding a king, but I'm definitely find myself seeking safety and security in things that just make sense to me, in places other than God. Like, haven't we all been there in some sense? Maybe you're there right now. See, in spite of all of Samuel's warnings, the Israelites still refused to trust God as their king and instead chose to do things their own way and not God's way. And we, like them, in spite of all of Scripture's warnings, we still refuse to trust God as king and instead choose to do things our own way, not God's way. See, far too often we're like the elders of Israel, seeking solutions that make sense to us and that seem to be working out for others instead of just trusting our good and faithful God to be sufficient and to provide everything that we need. See, it's easy to read stories like this on this side of history and to be critical. But we gotta be careful when we do that because couldn't the same be said of us? But yet God grants their wishes, right? He gives, he's like, go give them a king. And so we'll see um, that instead of God being done with the people of Israel, saying like, all right, you rejected me, fine. Have it your way. I'm rejecting you and just throwing in the towel, he still remains faithful. He continues to be faithful. See, from there we see that, that, that Saul is made king over Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, um, Saul has uh, all the physical attributes that you would want in a king. He's strong, he's from a good family, he's good looking, he, he's tall, literally, he's like it says that he's a head taller than everybody else, which would just be funny in, uh, in some ways. But like, he is tall. He's a big dude. And he has all the attributes that you would want in a king. But Saul has some really significant character flaws. Like, just to put it mildly, if you know anything about Saul, you're like, you're selling him a little short there. Um, his, his reign begins really well. He, he starts out Doing, doing a good job, staying faithful. He, he wins some battles, but not long into his story, we see the shortcomings of his character really start to bleed out. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul thought he knew better than God. Before going into battle, he was to have Samuel, which was Samuel's role, offer a sacrifice to God, and then the Israelites were to go into battle against the Philistines. But Saul got impatient. He thought he knew better. He's like, ah, we got to get that. We got to get into battle. Like we got to, we got to do this thing. And Samuel's not here. So I'll just make the sacrifice. It'll be all right. I'll make the sacrifice. We'll go into battle. It'll be great. So he does that. He goes into battle. He actually wins the battle, but it's on his terms, not on God's terms. It's on his prideful terms. Then we see in chapter 15, Saul blatantly disobey God again. He, he's headed into a battle with the Amalekites and he's instructed to, uh, to fight them and just thoroughly defeat them, obliterate them. And yet Saul decided uh, that he knew better. He decided he would stop short of what God called him to. And he uh, allowed his soldiers to plunder the spoils at the end, which, was specifically, which he was in specifically instructed not to let happen. And then when Samuel confronts him on it, um, he tries to justify his actions. And then he, he, he starts making excuses and he starts shifting the blame. This dude's not a good dude. It wasn't, long, it, it was, it wasn't until long into the, into the conversation with Samuel that Saul finally confesses, okay, I, I admit it, I messed up, I did something wrong. But this confession is hollow. It's not actually him grieving his sin. It's not him actually being like, I dishonored God. I need to confess and repent. No, he confesses simply because he's worried about his standing before the people and his position as king. 
He is deeply flawed. And it's from this point on throughout the the life and story of Saul that we see his reign tragically spiral down the drain. But we're introduced in uh, later on to uh, David. Anybody heard of this guy, David? He's a pretty good dude, right? He's this ruddy, unassuming, heart-playing shepherd boy, the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse from the city of Bethlehem. Uh, when, David, or when Samuel uh, was instructed by God to go to the house of Jesse uh, to anoint the next king, he thought he, ha- he knew who God had in mind for the next king. He's like, he goes, he stands before seven of the sons, and he's like, that's the one, Eliab, the oldest, the biggest, the strongest. Like, he's a king. He, he looks like king material. And it says in, in uh, chapter 16, verse Seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance on on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel is like, okay, God, I hear you. It's not him. All right. But there's only seven of the sons here. I think there's an eighth somewhere. He's like, Jesse, where's the, where's the youngest? Where's the eighth son? And where was David at? Anybody know? He's out in the field. He's out in the field, probably playing the harp with the sheep. Like he's, he's out caring for the sheep. So he sends for him. And when that son comes, when David shows up, God says to Samuel, arise and anoint him. For this is he. And David was anointed king. Now, he didn't instantly step into power in the role of king. Saul was still very much in power. Um, But God did begin in that moment to start pulling David into proximity within the kingdom. It started out with him playing the harp for Saul. Uh, Then he became Saul's armor bearer. Then there was this this famous battle, you may have heard of it, between David and Goliath, right? Where it's all all the Israelites are... um, are cowering in fear because this giant, literally, uh, warrior, the greatest warrior uh, that the Philistine army had uh, was threatening the people and, and the army of Israel. And it's like, nobody can defeat this guy. And David's like, what? I got this. Give me some stones. Give me a slingshot. I got the Lord on my side. We're going to do this thing. And he goes and he takes him out. And it's an incredible Story. Then that kind of launches him into this ascension into the military ranks where he becomes eventually this incredibly successful general. Then things begin to take a turn between Saul and David because Saul, knowing his character, he becomes jealous because David's growing in popularity. Everybody's like, this is the guy. He's awesome. Saul, you're cool. David's real cool. Like, and, and so he gets jealous. He begins to throw spears at uh, David. He eventually chases David out of the kingdom. This is like his best general. He chases out of the kingdom, chases him out into the wilderness and tries to kill him, hunting him for his life. It's a wild story. There's multiple times out in the wilderness uh, in a couple of different caves where David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Like he, he's, remember, he's like this great warrior. He knows what he's doing, um, but yet he chooses not to. Think about that. Like you're being hunted. Somebody's coming for you and they've been hunting you and, and you have an opportunity and David's like, I'm not gonna do it. It's because we see David's character. We see his heart. Remember, the heart that God sees, though man looks on the outward appearance. We see his patience. We see his hope. We see his trust in God's ways. We see his trust in God's timing. We see his trust in God's plans. It's it's really the opposite of Saul, right? At the end end of the day, Saul put his trust in himself, in his ability, in his power, in his plan, and what others thought of him. And that perpetuated throughout his reign as king, and those behaviors ended up leading him to this self-centered, and and prideful path that eventually led to his death at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. Contrast that with David, who is characterized in this part of the story as radically obedient to and trusting of God. 
which eventually leads to his rise and his enthronement as king, and it solidifies his lineage. As David hears of the death of Saul at the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 1, you would think that he'd be like, yes, this guy that's been chasing me, he's finally gone, right? Or at least he'd like breathe a big sigh of relief. He's like, okay, (laughs) I can come out of the wilderness But that's not what we see happen. David actually laments the death of his enemy. He mourns over the loss of this predator. He writes even a beautiful poem to honor the memory of Saul and his son, Jonathan. And then over the next bit of the story, we see God raise up David and exalt him as king. Not by David forcing it, not by David just making it happen, but by waiting on God and, God and trusting God to work things out. And he did. He, he exalted him as king. Now, early on in David's reign as king over Israel, um, he does a, a lot of significant things. Um, but we come to this really uh, important moment in the book of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're welcome to turn there if you want. David Um, He wants to build a temple for God. So he's made Jerusalem the capital city. He's he's renamed it Zion. It's the hub for all all the political side of things. And he wants to make it the hub for worship. He wants this to be the city that everybody comes to, to worship God. So he has the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem, to the city. And he goes to God and he's like, I wanna build you a temple. Like I wanna build you a house. And he comes to God, he says that, he asks God, can I build you a house? And God's like, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Instead of you building a house for me, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make a house for you. I am going to build a dynasty from your lineage. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is God talking to David. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, this is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. It's, it's key. It's so important. See, God is making a covenant with David. He's making David a promise. He's saying, I will establish your throne forever, forever. No matter what, I will establish your throne forever. This means that even if, let's say David has an affair, or, or, or even if, let's say he like goes and kills somebody, or, or even if his sons are corrupt and they screw things up. Let's say like, even if they're full of pride and lust and rage and an unquenchable thirst for power that would eventually lead to the splitting of the kingdoms. Even if this kingdom is practically obliterated by being led into exile, even if that happens, God says, my love will not run out. My promise will not fade. And this kingdom will be established and the reign of the seed of David will last forever. It's an absolutely amazing moment. It's amazing because everything that I just said actually happened, right? You guys know the story? Like David blew it big time. David, this great king with this great heart, failed miserably. He eventually goes and he takes advantage of and sleeps with Bathsheba. Then he tries to cover it up 
by having her husband Uriah murdered. And though David was truly remorseful and repentant, there were still extremely severe consequences for his sins. See, his, his family, his sons, Amnon uh, and Absalom, they're jacked up. They're like messed up dudes. Amnon goes and sexually assaults his sister Tamar. Then Absalom, another one of David's sons, goes and has Amnon killed. It's, it's crazy. Then Absalom starts this like secret coup, this rebellion in the, the, the nation of Israel to have David removed as king. And he actually forces David back out into the wilderness, running for his life again, like he, when he was chased by Saul. It's crazy. But this time it's only by his own son chasing him, trying to kill him because of his insatiable need for power. He, David's there on the run in the wilderness until eventually Absalom is killed. And it just breaks David's heart once again. David finds himself again lamenting the death of his enemy, the one who was trying to kill him. David's last days were spent back on his throne, but now just full of regret and remorse, broken and wounded and grieving the consequences of his unfaithfulness. And from there, we see king after king just continue this pattern of unfaithfulness. From Solomon and his lust after women and power and his willingness to give in to worshiping false gods. To Rehoboam and his insatiable greed that leads to the split of the kingdom into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. To the subsequent 20 or so kings in both of these kingdoms, most of which had zero positive qualities about them at all. Uh, Only a handful of them had any semblance of good and God-honoring character in them. But each one, each one failed to fulfill the role of a true and better king. Eventually, those kingdoms are conquered and the Israelites forced into exile. So who will this true and better king be? Who will be the seed from the line of David to rise up and deliver God's people into freedom? Who is the one who will lead God's people to fulfill the covenant promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Who will be the king that conquers the enemy once and for all and establishes the reign of this kingdom forever and ever? Who is the true and better king? Well, to answer that, we want to look at, the, at a prophet. Turn to a prophet named Isaiah. See, Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah lived and prophesied in the southern kingdom during the reign of kings Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This was pre-exile, but the kingdoms have split. He's in that southern kingdom, and he sees the imminent danger ahead for God's people. As God's chosen prophet, he warns the kings time and time again of the dangers that are ahead for the nation of Israel if they don't get their act together. After King Ahaz failed to be the answer, he penned this famous poem in Isaiah chapter 9 looking for the true and better king. Verse two of Isaiah nine, it says this. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. (laughs) On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This king is gonna be awesome. Whoever he will be, he, it's epic, right? Look at those names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Like, that is big time. That's not like some weak, small, like nobody. It's big time, right? He goes on in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, 
there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? You remember Jesse? He's the father of David. David. Yeah, nice work. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, this king is going to be epic. And this king is not just some earthly king that has all the earthly attributes that you would think. This is one. This king will be God's king. He will have the spirit of the Lord upon him. It's going to be amazing. He's going to be amazing. So who is he? Fast forward in the story, uh, in the life of Isaiah, we meet King Hezekiah. Hezekiah shows a lot of promise, but he fails. He comes up short. And his shortcomings eventually lead to that exile. The people of Israel being taken into exile. So we still find ourselves waiting for this true and better king only now in exile. Like in the darkest moments of the history of the nation of Israel. And it's there prophesying of the days in exile that Isaiah inserts a glimmer of hope in Isaiah 52. Verse one, he says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You see what's happening? It's happening. The freedom, the deliverance, the salvation is coming. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the nations of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's happening there in the midst of exile. He's coming like the deliverer is coming. Salvation is coming. Freedom is coming. Good news is to be told. So how will it go down? How's he going to do it? The king's coming. How's he going to do it? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Really? (laughs) This, This is the king? Verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For real? Like, after all this, after all that the nation of Israel has been through, Like this is the king. This is the one that's going to bring deliverance and freedom, salvation. Like, really? (laughs) You see, the true and better king isn't a king like anyone would expect. 
He isn't a king that has all the physical attributes. He isn't a king that comes from an esteemed home. He isn't a king that the people are clamoring for. He's not one that's showing off his power and his talents. He isn't a king that vies for position and seeks his own interest. No, he's the true and better king who is actually a suffering servant. This is the part of the story that leads us to Jesus. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our king. This is the true and better king. A king like no other. See, he didn't come with pomp and circumstance. Nah, he was born in a manger amongst animals in a lowly town of Bethlehem. He wasn't welcomed by a crowd of prestigious royal guests. He was welcomed by a scraggly bunch of lowly shepherds. He didn't grow up in wealth and honor. He grew up in a poor family and a poor town. He wasn't handed the title of prince. He worked for the title of carpenter. He didn't get annoyed or look down on children and the young people. He said, let them come to me. And from them, there's much to learn. He didn't force his subjects into service. He instead turned and served them. He didn't spend his time with the leaders of the day. He spent his time with the tax collectors and the fishermen and the prostitutes. He didn't turn his nose up to the broken and the outcasts. He got down on their level, met them where they were, and healed them physically and spiritually. He didn't avoid messy situations. He instead stepped in and got his hands dirty for the sake of his people. He didn't appease the powerful movers and shakers of the day. He instead called them out on their hypocrisy and their greed. He didn't shriek back when an imminent death was before him. He obediently stepped into it. He didn't fight back when he was falsely accused. He remained silent as a lamb before its shears. He didn't give up when the life was being beaten out of him at his scourging. He endured blow after blow after blow for the sake of finishing the work. His life wasn't taken from him. He willingly laid it down under the authority of his father for the salvation of his people. See, this is the king, the true and better king, a king like no other. And this is not only the way of the king, but this is the way of his kingdom. It's, as many theologians say, call it an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't make sense. It's because they say that because Jesus said things like he did in Matthew 20 when he said, when he's talking to his disciples, and he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Or when he gave the Sermon on the Mount and he said things like, blessed are you who are poor. (laughs) Like how countercultural is this? Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil. And then he said, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when all speak well of you. Then he goes on to say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It's an upside down kingdom. It doesn't make sense, but this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom made up of poor, hungry, meek, weeping, merciful, peacemaking, and humble people who are willing to love their enemies, to pray for their adversaries, 
to serve the least of these, to care for the orphan and for the widow, to bring justice for the oppressed, to welcome the sojourner, to forgive the offender again and again and again, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to take up their cross and follow their king. It's the servant king and the kingdom of servants. This is what we're called to as the people of God. And this is what we're called to because this is the example that Jesus left for us. See, the king of the cosmos, the promised Messiah from the line of David, the one who has all power and who has nothing to prove, who rules and who reigns forever and ever. He calls us to humble ourselves and be a kingdom of servants because he was willing to humble himself by coming to earth. And at the pinnacle of that humbling, at the point of greatest humiliation, there hanging on a cross, we see him exalted as king. Those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. Or as Paul puts it better yet, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. He's not talking about the resurrection as important and vital as the resurrection is. He's talking about the cross. He says the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who don't hear the music. But to us, us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, the cross was not the defeat of the king. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a thwarting of the plan. It wasn't a moment of weakness where the enemy took the lead and left God scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. No, it was the divinely willed means through which the kingdom would be established. See, the cross was not a mistake. It was simultaneously a self-surrendering humiliation and a world-saving exaltation of the king of kings. Jesus, the king above all kings, the one who was king yesterday, is king today and will be king tomorrow and forevermore. He chose to establish his kingdoms, not in his kingdom, not in spite of a cross, but through the means of a cross. Do you know what this means for us? Like this is huge for us. It means that we really can trust this sovereign king. Like we really can. We really can trust him because if he chose to use a cross to establish his kingdom, what could he have in store for the struggles and sufferings in our life? See, when the world feels like it's falling apart, when your world feels like it's falling apart, when you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, when you're nearing the end of your rope and you feel like you've lost all hope, just remember that the king, the true and better king, chose to establish his kingdom through a cross. Remember that. The messiness and the brokenness that you may be trudging through right now may just be the ashes that he has plans to make beauty out of. Because that's the kind of king he is. That's the kind of work that he does. So don't lose heart. Like friends, don't, don't lose heart. Wherever you're at, hear me. Don't lose heart. Like in fact, like take heart. Jesus said, take heart. John 16, he said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Like he has, this is true, guys. He has indeed overcome. See the king who willingly and humbly laid down his life powerfully and authoritatively took it back up again. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
Yes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And this exalted king, he who sits in throne, who rules and reigns and will reign forever and ever and ever. He is coming back. See, this king's coming back. He will return and he will make all things new. His kingdom will be fully realized on earth as it is in heaven. See, he's coming back on a white horse with fire in his eyes and an angelic army at his side with the names King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his thighs. He's coming back. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He will annihilate the enemy once and for all. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will invite us to come and sit at the table with him. Make a home with him. Sitting around the table with the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. Sitting around the table with the lamb who was slain. Sitting around the table with the king of kings. The true and better king. You see, Jesus really is true and better. He really is. He's the true and better king. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Last eight weeks have been an amazing journey as we've discovered how Jesus really is true and better. He's the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience has become our righteousness by faith in him. We learn that Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. He's the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Deborah who remained faithful in his obedience to God's plan for our salvation, even in the midst of the doubts of those closest to him. He's the true and better Esther who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better priest who never needed to offer sacrifice for his own sin because he didn't have any, but instead he satisfied the need for sacrifice by sacrificing himself. Jesus is the true and better prophet who not only spoke on behalf of God and gave the law to the people, but is God's word in the flesh, fulfilling God's law for the people. Jesus is the true and better king destined to reign with authority and power and majesty, yet used his position to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus. This is our king. This is the king above all kings. This is the king who's worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power and praise. So why don't we stand together tonight and let's give all glory all honor and all praise to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was and is and is to come. Let's worship Jesus together.